At Maximus, we are focused on the future of federal government. We deliver mission-driven innovation at speed and scale, turning insights into impact. We are a top systems integrator and leading provider of transformative technology services, digitally enabled customer experiences, and clinical health services. We help agencies navigate obstacles and anticipate the unexpected by becoming more agile, empowered, effective, and ready for what lies ahead. We are Maximus, moving people forward. Learn more at Maximus.com federal. You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMarkU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by public sector executive and global government thought leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. So one thing that we couldn't do previously that we can do today in Generative AI is that you might you might say, hey, here's my architecture for my environment, for my system. Try to create vulnerabilities or break my system from an adversarial point of view. See, now we start to get to these games, you know, now we could do red teaming for a machine to start doing it and tell me. So that then that takes some of that cognitive load off of the analysts and defenders and allows them to do more higher order work. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. The recent introduction of large language models and other generative AI have created a lot of buzz about how creative outputs can mimic what humans have done for a really long time. And as the federal government ramps up its modernization efforts to improve services and provide a better customer experience and increase cybersecurity, the use of these AI technologies are going to be impactful in developing software that meet these needs. In this episode, we're going to discuss the many ways that AI can support secure, responsible development at an accelerated pace for agencies. These include debugging code, checking for code vulnerabilities, and even recoding old programming languages like Cobble that still power some systems. We're also going to cover AI's impact on the workforce as the technology performs certain development functions that had been done by humans. By taking over some of these repetitive jobs, AI allows humans to handle more complex problems. In other cases where there's a shortage of humans with particular skill sets, AI is going to process the data and manage the workload to support those initiatives. My guests in this conversation are two senior leaders from Maximus, Kathleen Featheringham, who's the vice president of AI and machine learning, and Frank Reyes, a cloud solutions leader. Kathleen and Frank, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for being here today to cover such a topical area of interest right now for our listeners. Hey, thanks for having us, Brian. Kathleen, I want to start with you. If you could introduce yourself and your background and some of the things that you're doing at Maximus right now. Hi, so thank you for having us today. I'm really excited to talk about this. So as, as mentioned, I'm Kathleen Featheringham. I am the lead for in our federal our AI machine learning kind of portfolio of capabilities and services. So really, what does that mean? That means... We are, you know, large technology integrator, and we're looking at bringing solutions to bear against some of our clients' hardest problems. So my focus is especially of how do we do that with AI and machine learning responsibly? 
So whether that is the development of, whether that's helping them figure out where they're at and where they're trying to go, or the actual build out, and let's say the engineering side of the house to be able to scale those to the enterprise. We're really concentrating on what are the outcomes that whether it's the federal government or other clients can have through the use of AI responsibly. Excellent. I mean, with with the way AI and, and a lot of these topics are mainstream right now, I could imagine it's a it's a big role with a lot of a lot of really cool use cases that you're seeing. So we're gonna we're gonna touch on some of those things today. And Frank, I want to come over to you because you really can't have a conversation around AI and machine learning without cloud. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're doing at Maximus? Yeah, so I'm here to lead our solutions architecting and orchestrations group, right? And so when you speak about AI, um, two specific issues uh, is how do you get the data that you need to you know, train your AI models? Um, and then how do you operate your machine learning capabilities? And so that's really what, you know, here at Maximus, uh, my team focuses on is how do we, how are we the enablers of that. In my background, you, I previously, um, before coming to Maximus, I was at AWS, uh, working with very similar federal customers going through their cloud journey and how the public cloud, but also the private cloud and hybrid cloud really unlocks innovations like AI. Interesting. So I, I want to jump right into this because like I said, we're going we're gonna to cover a lot today. Kathleen, I want to come to you first. How do you think or why do you think that generative AI has really gone so mainstream right now? Yeah, so I, I think it's the easiest way to look at it is some of the capabilities have been democratized. So where it looks like and can do more things. A lot of the times what AI has been used for in the past was the ability to go through massive amounts of data to find trends and let's say do some type of analysis on that data. With the launch of things like ChatGPT and, and other generative capabilities, you're now seeing it being able to compile things. So let's say it's summarizing or answer what it appears to answer questions and be able to go through that. You now have it open to the public where people are now able to actually interact with it, try it out, see how it can be used. And they don't have to have a whole type of environment already previously set up nor some of the technical skills and capacity to literally try it out. So with that, it's it's kind of open the, open the floodgates of being able to very heavy interact with it. That type of technology is, is very specific, but AI in general, I would say, people have been interacting with it all the time, especially on their phones, different capabilities and features that have been out there. They just may not have realized it because again, it was much more of, Hey, here's a, a unique, cool feature. Whether you know in the your photos app, you can now you could do searches previously by like what's in the photo. Those types of things just weren't necessarily advertised. Versus this, where it mimics what it really looks like of a potential human to do so. So that is really brought it to the forefront and the in yeah. Of I, I think you nailed it too. Being able to, especially from a, a business to consumer perspective, being able to get your hands on that technology and use it for everyday use cases or, or just, just things you want to so easily, I think it, it lends itself to, to quickly navigate into that enterprise. So you already have these, these experiences and you know how to use it. And you start thinking about, oh, how can I bring this into work? And then it just kind of metastasizes from there. And it's, I think it's cool how it does that. But I, I'm curious to know, and, and Frank, I want to come over to you. How do you think technologies like this can really augment the enterprise and kind of help modernize that landscape, especially when it comes to uh, focuses like national security and homeland security. 
Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I think to, to Kathleen's point is why it's been so democratized is it, it seems like magic, right? And there's a, there's a famous quote that, that's out there that relate that says that any technology of significant value to the user appears to be magic. And what, what we're seeing is that employees in these enterprises are starting to hear their peers, their friends, people using their technologies, and even themselves are using some of these generative AI technologies just on their own, um, experimenting with it. And it begs the question, hey, I see how I can, how my kids are using this, how my friends are using this. What if we could use this in, in my works um, uh, work stream? And so I, I think where we're, we're really seeing, uh, especially in national security, is like the nat- natural question of like when, I, I would say it's kind of like when drones came about, like these small handheld drones for, uh, were out there and they were ubiquitous and they were affordable that you can get on Amazon. And, you know, people were using it for photography and then national security was like, oh, well, I have to have something that's expendable, um, somewhat reliable, but I don't need to have a whole training program to like figure out how to use it. Um, yeah, let me let's let's see what, what use cases for uh, small drones uh, are, are, are useful. I see that now happening in generative AI technologies, right? People are tinkering on the outside and then trying to look at how they can um, take use value of that um, on the inside at the enterprise. Um, so yeah, uh, national security is just one of the many places in government where it's going to be explored in, you know, whether, you know, um, if you heard, uh, I would say about a few months ago, um, uh, a CBP put out during an FCN event uh, asking, hey, you know, where can we use uh uh, generative AI and AI technologies in general uh, to to help us target and figure out which cargo containers we should be focusing on, given the millions of uh, billions of pieces of of goods that come through our, our our borders. Kathleen, are there other? I mean, either even outside of of security, but are there other use cases that you're seeing across government right now? Are they using it to its full potential? Yeah, I don't think they're using it to its full potential yet, but rightfully so. Look, this is an emerging technology. So some of the things like you see with the open versions like ChatGPT, you can't handle putting like uh, proprietary or types of information that needs to be protected in there yet because it that data would go into the training set. And so that would be something that you probably wouldn't want to do, but it's fast coming. So there's a lot of what I would say is more pilots of it, pilots of what that could look like, because it is coming really soon to have that capability to be in the enterprise and therefore have the data protected. So that generative model is only running against, you know, your trusted sets of data. So with that being said, I think there's a lot, a lot of different types of use cases, whether it's in national security, homeland security, or abroad that it could be applied to. So it could be, you know, thinking about uh, code checks. So um, you know, a lot of the times we think of code in various capacities, but it really is a language. So if you're trying to be able to go through and do audits of that code for potential vulnerabilities, that is possible. It could also help potentially for people who are writing code, giving them an assist of prompts or for saying, hey, maybe this is the code that would be a better choice for this types of function and or start the actual generation of it. Another thing would be whether it's communications or analyst reports and things is help you get started. So 
I'll put this in the time frame for like myself. I have to do a lot of things where I only have a certain amount of time to do it. Let's say it's, you know, write an article or, or write, um, you know, some type of case study or things. I may only have an hour to devote to it. So out of that hour, I'm going to have to, you know, put in the mechanics pieces of it. You know, you're going to have to have the intro, you know, you're going to have to have some of the closing things and you're going to have to have things that just make the actual product work and flow. So I probably only get to spend, let's say if it's an hour, I spend on one particular thing, I probably only get to spend 20% or less on what I would say is the creative, the critical thinking portions that humans are really good at because I have to cover all those mechanics portions. If it can give me a starting point that I can then therefore add to, that's a great use case for generative, you know, of being able to get you your fundamental pieces, all the parts that you can add. You obviously need to validate in terms of that it's contextually right. So that's where really thinking about it as an assistive device is a great thing. Um, there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of other things, as we mentioned about this, like some of the code ones, but it's what are you trying to do and what are you trying to get information for? So that starting point, um, it could be going through large amounts of documents for you and giving summaries. Again, you'll hear things like hallucinations and what they things, you know, that's a little bit of a tougher, you know, for the general public to understand because we're giving, you know, human traits and really putting those human traits onto machines. That's not actually how they work. A lot of it is statistical elements of, you know, hey, when we've trained it on all these big corpuses of data, we found that statistically that if you put these three words, the likelihood of these words coming next are pretty high. So it's going together and putting those things together, which again, for let's say it's something like a job requisition, you know, nobody likes really writing job recs, putting those are perfect examples of it. But as where it's at, and it will evolve and it will get better and better, but where it's currently at, using it as a starting place is a really, really good in a variety of I like of how you positioned it as kind of almost like a sidekick in a, in a similar way. I mean, there's a technology that's gone very mainstream right now in the form of RPA, and they've used it in a, in a similar way where it kind of sits alongside somebody. But as you started talking, one of the things I was kind of asking myself is I wonder what the appetite or the willingness of government uh, is to allow people even right now to leverage these technologies in the same way you just mentioned, right? I'm going to go write something or I'm going to do a position description for a role and I'd like to use this technology. Is that something you think they would be willing to do even now? I mean, I definitely think that they will, but it's going to have to have some understanding of the, the bounding boxes mm -hmm. for it. You know, if I'm writing something that starts, let's say, an internal communication that doesn't have, you know, massive consequences of it, sure, that's probably a great thing to do. And we at Maximus have actually used it in those contexts already internally for ourselves. But if you're talking about something that it would be written and it is nobody and there's not going to be the sets of proper reviews, probably not. But the big thing of being able to use it right now is the fear of that that privacy part that I was talking about. So using and putting stuff directly into chat GPT right now comes with some privacy issues. And other, let's say it's, you know, barred and some of the things comes with those parts. If you're separating out the framework from it and using the actual capability, which is coming mainstream in all your big cloud providers, services and tools there, that it's separate from that, then mm -hmm. you are talking about doing it in a much safer environment. And 
the flexibility opens up to being able to try to use it. The bigger problems and the scary things that you're hearing about out in the news is when people aren't actually understanding where it's currently at and trying to get it to do everything and do the least work amount possible. So there's been and look, I'll generalize this, but I think it was a case of, you know, a lawyer using um, using it to write a brief and it was supposedly hallucinated, um, you know, cases that never existed. It didn't make up cases. It basically pieces and parts of information were cut apart and then they were put back together incorrectly. So that's not going to be a great use of it to write you the full things because you would have to spend a lot of the time fact checking all of those pieces. But let's say it's more discreet writing about certain areas. That's where you start to hear about what people are calling, um, you know, prompt engineering, which is really just using their subject matter expertise and their creativity to ask better questions to get contextually better. Another answers. use case you had had mentioned is writing code. And Frank, I, I'm curious to get your take here because you were just talking around uh, national security, homeland security. And, and when I heard Kathleen talk about the use case around writing code, the other thing I was thinking, and I, I think I've even read some, some articles around this is the ability for this type of technology to potentially, um, build cyber attacks, write that code to a, to an attack. And it begs the question, is there capability for this technology to actually combat those very same attacks that, mm. that can be created on it? Oh, yeah. Um, there's already reports out there. Um, you know, if you look at the maturity curve of cyber actors, um, those from the very sophisticated uh, nation state, all right, all the way to, you know, that's the high end to people just, you know, finding um, malware and doing um, quick scripting. What, you know, Generative AI really does really well is makes that low level type of cyber attacks really easier um, because you can ask it, you know, write me um, based upon this malware, write me a similar code base that cannot be defended against this type of um, defense mechanism. And that's where you're starting to see, um, you know, some prompt engineering on this offensive capabilities for this low level of um, uh, cyber attacks. And so you're just, gonna, and that's really what our future is going to probably be is, is we're going to see a lot more of the phishing, the prompt injection. So the um, lower level attacks that people are like, oh, well, you know, let's not worry about those as much, you know, where they always in a traditional IT security space focused on the criticals and highs, you're just going to get bombarded by so many low level attacks because now it just becomes easier. Um, just as it is easy to write copy for maybe a LinkedIn post, it's going to be just as easy to write um, an, a, a new version of malware. And so now the importance of malware signatures and, this, and, and the speed of it uh, are going to matter. What make, does make sense though, is, you know, the great thing about, um, you know, any technology is it's a double-edged sword. So protecting of it, now you can have cybersecurity professionals start to start gaming. Hey, I know this malware exists in the wild. Tell me five different ways that this can also exist. And then start training 
your internal defenses against the multiple permutations of a known malware, right? So now you're kind of trying to get ahead of what you naturally are going to think that an adversary is going to do against you. Um, so yeah, the the um, generative AI uh, cyber arms race is definitely going to be a thing, right? Because um, there it's going to be back and forth, back and forth, because as one gets more sophisticated, the other one does and vice versa. As you were talking about the the bombarding uh, by lower level attacks, one of the things that that came to mind was I would imagine driving efficiency because it's I mean we could talk about this too, but one of the challenges that they have in cybersecurity is is that talent gap, that talent issue. So yeah. you're you're trying to stop all these attacks with with less people. Um, so you need to drive efficiencies, and I can see this technology certain be, certainly being able to do that, right? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, when right now, you know, a lot of analysts spend time looking at um, indicators of compromise, uh, looking at log data. And that's actually where generative AI tools, you know, that do really well, well on malware detection and analysis, they actually do really well at that where, you know, where your use cases, here's lots and lots of data. Um, tell me more about what's happening in my environment. Or... Uh, you know, so one thing that we couldn't do previously that we can do today in generative AI is that you might you might say, "Hey, here's my architecture for my um, environment for my system. Try to create vulnerabilities or break my system from an adversarial point of view." See, now we start to get to these games. You know, now we could do red teaming for a machine to start doing it and tell me so that then that takes some of that cognitive load off of the analysts and the defenders and allows them to do more higher order work. You know, that, that, that um, realm of imagination, right? Um, and that's just from like the pure cyber. But like, as you know, a lot of analysts write briefs and a lot of analysts write, you know, um, PowerPoint presentations. That's also like doing that, that stuff is immensely helpful to, increase the productivity and open up capacity on that analyst, right? If it can say, hey, tell me, given today's logs, what are the top five things happening? It can start writing that based upon all this log data that's coming in and do the analysis or what system is being most um, uh, targeted in our environment, right? It can write that and do it overnight. And so when they come in in the morning, it has, you know, your preambles already ready. And, you know, the great thing with PowerPoint, right? You In uh, Visual Basic, you can write PowerPoint in code. Um, and also there's many companies that are cre creating PowerPoint, just generative AIs in general. Uh, think about that. Like an analyst doesn't have to worry about, you know, doing all the graphics and all the things that have to do with PowerPoint. They can just focus on the actual insight and then delivering that to uh, another decision maker or another team that needs to use that for um, defending their networks. I think that that's where, where we're going to see is the true value and the true benefit of Genevi is like get releasing a lot of the workforce from the mundane, the tedious, just the stuff that doesn't provide a lot of value, but just takes up a lot of time in a person's day. Kathleen, I want to throw that same question over to you. I know we had talked about use cases before, but if you put it through the filter of kind of driving human efficiencies, what are some of the things you think the federal government could certainly use this type of technology for to drive those those efficiencies that are needed? 
Yeah, so expanding on a couple of things Frank said and, and some of the things I said before. So let's take writing code. Um, there's a lot of different ways that people have been taught to do it. Sometimes they're pulling stuff and, you know, pulling things together from here, from here, from here. If you actually have, let's say, a repository of code that's already been, you know, tested and said, hey, here's, you know, the best practices for having this. If you have that where it can prompt somebody up the same way, like when you go to your emails now, let's say it's your Gmail or one of the others, and it's already kind of putting up a, what it's guessing or like your next words of the sentence. If you have that for code, you know, and things that your ability to put that up there, it essentially buys down a little more risk of actual code writing at the beginning, because most likely somebody's going to take it and say, okay, I wanted to do that function. They may need to override it because that may not meet a certain function that they want, but they would, they have the opportunity to, and therefore you're already using, you know, tried and, and, and tested code that may not have, you know, the vulnerabilities that humans actually may accidentally introduce from the get go. In addition to that, you also have the scanning, right? So let's say it's scanning of code and, and the parts of where it is, and they can identify as well as recommend, so therefore generate a code that should replace it that would better harden it. Then kind of keep, you know, keep pulling that through. Then you have a lot of the legacy infrastructure in the federal government is written in really some really old, outdated code. So a lot of the big problems are is that you're going to have to completely rebuild and rewrite all the code for these major systems, and that takes time. So imagine now having developers having access to being able to rewrite code where maybe it starts off with certain things, and then it could actually do that language and say, hey, take this that's written in this archaic code and put it into this code that I want to today. It could actually mm -hmm. start to do that. Then, but again, you want to have the validations in there that it's appropriate. You're not going to just be able to say, hey, write in the, you know, according to today, write in one whole prompt that says rewrite this entire code and have it execute it, you know, appropriately. It's probably going to have to be broken apart into logic flows and the things that would be needed. But those are perfect ones. And so if you think about that language, but again, Frank mentioned some of like Intel analysis reports and things like that. There's a lot of perception that, again, it's going to replace people. You have things like the writer's strike and things there because it's not creating like inherently new creative things. It's taking from the existing pool amalgamation of it. So I've done a lot with some of the things right now and a lot of the answers you'll get if you write, you know, a question, you're, you're going to kind of get some general answers. You have to know enough about certain subject matter expertise as a human to go back in to ask very heavier, discreet questions. So it's more about giving that time, but not the idea of necessarily replacing wholesale. There may be in the future, but this is also how you see the evolution. You know, the term like technological, um, uh, technological disruption and the terms of, of having people unemployment, technological unemployment actually came out in like the, you know, early 1900s and like 1930s. And so there was all, there's been calls over time, all the time for, well, this is going to put us out of jobs. Yes, that may be true in some cases, but it may also just open up the evolution of what those next jobs look like. So like if a, a super quick example would be like an elevator operator of previous. The reason that they had, you know, somebody, if you think of like in New York, because 
the idea of humans going to get in this big metal box without somebody controlling it. So they had like this whole lever thing, right? That was, that was a road too far, but then they actually put in, put in buttons where people could start to press it, but you had the individual in there. So humans did over time realize that they could actually just press the buttons themselves because that once the trust was built up, but that actually was kind of instigated by a strike. But so you would think today, the fact that they had those buttons replaced elevator operators. It did in a sense, but not really. So when you got in those elevators, people were, what were they else were they doing besides, you know, pressing the buttons? They were literally talking to him about, they would ask questions. Let's say they were in a hotel, what's a good place to eat? You know, what type of show should we see if they were in a retail thing? Hey, we're having a sale on this. So they took a lot of those people got taken, not maybe not directly, but then you started to see the rise of a concierge, mm -hmm. you know, so then you have a desk there. And today we have still have some concierge, but you have a massive industry of concierge of, you know, travel, hoteling, uh, vacations, you have all sorts of things. So sometimes it's just, opening it up and then allowing for the natural evolution of being able to provide different and better types. I, of I really like mm -hmm. that analogy, how you kind of tie that in. Cause it, it makes complete sense. And I think we, especially, especially from a government perspective, we've been having these conversations for years now when emerging technologies like this and others have come into play. And, and two of the terms that have come into my mind that when you were talking were, reskilling, upskilling, right? This has been something that they've talked about as these technologies evolve and, and to try to position people to be able to leverage them in a more intentional way. Do you look at, at generative AI specifically as something that people need to get reskilled, upskilled on? Or, or, or is this something that you feel like they can launch and they'll have a good understanding of it? I think it's a little mm -hmm. column A, a little column B. So you could absolutely launch into it. But again, you may not have some of the base understanding. Do we need to have everybody who can fully code? No. But do they need to understand what the output is that they're looking for? So for example, there's a difference between me who has an AI background and the understanding of some of the technical ways that it's working, you know, asking certain questions and AI and having it develop it then versus somebody who may not have that background. The same for me, if let's say I was going to ask certain like discrete healthcare things on it. You know, I need a basis of reference to validate. So humans need to know enough about like how it's working and that it's really just going through and trying to, you know, pull the next logical things of, and not human logic, but like, hey, chances are, you know, percentage wise, it, it puts this as the next one. But they need to have some of that domain expertise to validate what it is. And it will get better. That's the whole idea of it. The, the prompt engineering part is the better questions that we ask of it, that to get the types of responses, that means it's training it. It means that it will now know that in the future, potentially, that if I originally asked in these words, and then I went back and asked in these words, that those words might be related. So it contextually will start to give, you know, better answers. So Yes, could somebody start to use this? But there's cases of it, you know, for certain things where it may not give the right answers. And that's okay, but that's why the validation portion of this. So do you need to understand all the discrete code of it? No, but you need to have some awareness of where the current technology is at and the risks of knowing, hey, this is where the appropriate. So mm -hmm. kind of changing the mindset. Yeah, and I think one of the areas like we're going to see is, you know, organizations starting to train their people on human AI collaboration, right? Like as part of that reskilling, like we never, uh, you know, it's not something we've really talked about is like 
how do we create a workforce that leverages AI tools as a a principle of how they work, right? Um, you know, there's, I, I'm sure we, we, we still have challenges with, you know, getting our coworkers to use track changes on Word, right? Um, and that's because no one for, focused on like, hey, we should probably train this as like a cultural thing. And I think that's what, you know, along with the reskilling and upskilling is like you, from a senior leader's perspective, you kind of have to create that culture of safety and psychology to work with generative AI technologies. And, 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 and just as Kathleen mentioned, where are the appropriate use cases for that human AI collaboration um, for there? And then, uh, uh, you know, going along with that is like, you know, that's why we're seeing some software developers mid-college right now going saying, hey, I'm going to focus on prompt engineering or understand or, or, or focus on developing um, Vortex uh, databases and, and so on and so forth. Um, it, because what we're seeing is that there's going to be new skill sets are going to come down the pipeline. And what I'm most hopeful is like, it, it's going to allow us to automate a lot of these mundane tasks and really support decision-making so that each of us can focus on more complex and strategic activities. Like truly what is humanistic in your line of work, you get to do that now and focus on that. And that's, I think, is a cultural thing um, uh, when, when, when the organization has to say like, do you really like, you know, having to scroll through your email for, you know, three hours a day? Probably not. Can we find a way that we can do this better? Yeah, let's work on that. And then fine, do these pilots and work in the enterprise level of like, how can we un- get back some of this productivity we've been losing um, for many decades? So we've talked a lot about the impact this technology is going to have. And I think you just touched on it a little bit there. So Frank, I'm going to stay with you. And then Kathleen, I want to get your take on it. What are some best practices around deploying this type of technology and into an environment, into an enterprise environment to get the maximum value out of it. How, how, do you take, how do you take it from theoretical to practical? Yeah, so I would say the first step is just like any other technology in the enterprise, there's always going to be a shadow IT, right? That exists even when, you know, early days of cloud, there was people starting an experiment with the cloud before organizations created, you know, uh, a, a, a governance to moving to the cloud. I think that's the first step is, you know, a governance structure of how our organization plans to use generative AI technologies and start there. You know, I think leaders should definitely have a way of like, hey, how do we experiment? How do we um, identify specific use cases? And then what are the internally for an organization? Like, what do we think are too risky for us to try right now? And what are we willing to try and open up and how, and what is it that we need to learn to move us to a, as I mentioned earlier, a culture of AI human collaboration using these technologies. So I would say the best practice that we're seeing is just start off with the governance, have the conversations with your organizations, because as I started this discussion earlier, people are experimenting with these. They want, they're interested in it, allow them a safe space to do it obviously understanding, you know, the, the risks you might have as an organization and just acknowledge it. And Kathleen, over to you. And any, any thoughts on, on best practices on how to deploy these types of technologies to really drive and make the greatest impact? 
Yeah. So similar, similar to um, what Frank said, I, I absolutely agree. And I, I think I'll give, I'll take it a little step further and give you kind of an example of some of the things we've been actually doing internally in Maximus. Right. So sometimes it's, you know, learning from your own organizations, too. And then, you know, for us, as we go out and help other organizations. So definitely believe in the, the whole facet of AI governance in general. But it, parts of that is not to stop. It's to help to get to yes and in the right ways and the mitigation parts. So, for example, you know, the parts of where can anybody uh, use certain technologies are out there. We may block them to start, but then they have a process of going through. So let's say it's a generative AI tool that may get blocked. Um, there's a purpose of why it was blocked originally. Right now, if, if any information goes into, let's say, ChatGPT or something like that, you know, it would be out in the open. So that, that can be a risk area issue that people may not necessarily know. So then there's a process to get it unblocked. And the process to get it unblocked, let's say for us, is actually pretty easy. But it actually acts as an education point as well and says, hey, you know, just to sign off on, I won't use this. Um, I won't use this in certain capacities. I will not be um, putting, you know, uh, Maximus proprietary information or other client proprietary information or other types of things into it. So you actually start to give while blocking, but you give them the process of how to get to yes. You start giving them the education of what could be issues for it and things, and then you start learning from it. So we had, and I definitely don't want to take a credit for it because it was a, a part of our internal communications group who did some testing of it. They did testing of a generative software to be able to write some internal communications and literally seeing which ones that people would prefer. So, you know, that's the types of things where you're validating the output and testing the output of what it looks like, but in kind of controlled safe spaces. So as it starts to go along, then you can start to move because you're also moving some parts of the education, but you're putting some safety guards and like rails in place so that people won't just go out randomly using it without having some parts of the education of like, hey, you know, privacy and parts of the data, and you start moving out from there. Those are the types of things that we see. The other part is thinking about how you will tell people that let's say the generative was used. So I'm responding to, you know, some types of requests for information things. Let's say if I'm using it, I'm starting to put headers at the top that explains how it was used. You know, it was used, the fact that it was used and how it was used. Because again, it's not that it's inherently wrong, but then also how it paired human speed capabilities in with it for validating. Because you may want to know, and let's say if the output is generated and it's such a high enough um, point of where it's going to really matter, people should be told that it, it was generated using, you know, this type of generative device so that they have an understanding that they're probably going to have to review a lot heavier and making sure and validate the outputs. So it's it's those parts of how do you build it into the process and give the abilities to have kind of checks and balances there. People are going to want that too. You know, you want to know that like somebody else has some things of telling, being able to, so you don't have to learn to be the hardcore expert, but that you're also able to try it out in a safer way. Makes environment. a lot of sense. I think there's a lot of things, and and as we talked about the complexities on this show, there's there's a lot of things that need to be put into place to really make sure <laughs> this these types of programs and initiatives um, are maximized. And I think that's um, those are just some of the things. I'm glad we glad we talked about implementation. <laughs> I'm sure we could have spent an entire episode on on implementation, but that, that was a great place to start. Um, 
as we wrap up, I want to give you you both uh, some time to leave leave any final thoughts you might have. I appreciate I appreciate the time you guys have spent here, kind of making us smarter on on these technologies. But Kathleen, I'll start with you. Any final thoughts you want to leave with the listeners? Yeah, so I, I think it's just being open to it. You know, that this is definitely evolving technologies, um, and it's thinking about the pairing of and not the replacement. But how will it help you do what you're really good at from humans? And that's, you know, critical thinking and creativity. How can you leverage these to enable you to do those things that you're passionate about, solve those really hard problems that keep you up at night, as opposed to thinking about the parts and the base fears of, hey, it's going to completely, you know, just replace you. Chances are it's likely not. You know, humans have so much intrinsic value and are the creators of AI and the associated data sets. So I, I'd say be open to it, but also acknowledging that, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. So there's a lot of how you would do it and use it and develop it responsibly. That's a really good point. Um, and Frank, over to you. Any any final thoughts you want to leave? Yeah. Um, you know, as in any technology, it's, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's both sides of the coin. Um, so, you know, one of the things we really didn't um, uh, chat about is like, you know, there's a great deal of promise and hope and, you know, we should definitely be indexing on the upside benefits for it. Um, and especially how it, you know, pertains to how government's going to use to, you know, advance our homeland security and our national security defense, right? That's really where we're probably going to see a lot of interest in the coming days, for that is how can generative AI really help in that space? Because that's where a lot of investment is going to happen when it comes to the federal government uh, for it, uh, working alongside um, our non-national security partners within the government, and then having the discussions, you know, globally of like, what does that mean of using generative AI in that context of, of um, protection and um, helping citizens. So, you know, if you're thinking about it from um, humanitarian assistance during disaster relief, I think generative AI technologies have very interesting use cases that we haven't even had an opportunity to talk about. And maybe some other time we'll, we'll talk about that. But how are we going to even just bring it down to, you know, the airmen on the ground where they think of, you know, hey, what if, you know, we had this capability and instead of having to be an expert in writing code, they are an expert in being an aircraft mechanic. And they ask a machine, hey, could you write me a quick app to solve for this issue? I think that's where we're going to see a great deal of um, potential for us um, to, to, to really advance both our national security, our homeland security, and overall our citizen um, outcomes. So thank you for your time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I, you guys will probably both agree with this. I mean, this technology is evolving at such a rapid rate. Um, I feel like in a few months we could be talking about different topics, so we might need to have you guys on in the near future to unpack some of those things. But um, in the meantime, thank you guys again so much for being here. This is a, a really fun discussion. Um, I feel like I'm walking away a, a lot smarter about some things that were, were ambiguous before. So appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Brian. Thank you. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to governmenthuddle.com or if you access your podcast. Or feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Chittister AB. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now.